God's word is good, powerful, and true. Through its proclamation, God works to open our eyes to his perfect will and truth. May God bless the preaching of his holy word today. We, uh, we've been in the, the book of Ecclesiastes and we are, we are now wrapping up. We've wrapped up the book of Ecclesiastes. Corey last week, re, uh, last week preached from the book of Psalms. And now we are, we are returning to the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Mark chapter 7. We are in the middle of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7. And out of honor for God's word, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We are going to read the whole thing, so it's going to be a little bit lengthier. So uh, please follow along. Mark Chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of, the, some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews who do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes, scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters his heart but not his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they 
defile a person. May God continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. We find ourselves back in the book of Mark today. It was a little over a year ago that when we began this series in the gospel according to Mark. We began last fall and took a break for Advent, picked it up again at the start of the new year, and then most recently took a break for the summer as we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. For the rest of this fall, we will resume our study in Mark until Advent season. So, we are in the middle of Mark. And to gain our bearings, let me remind you of the immediate context that we uh, had before we took our break in Ecclesiastes. Before our break for the summer, we finished up chapter 6. Jesus had just fed a crowd of 5,000 Jews in the wilderness or a desolate place in northern Israel. A remarkable miracle, intentionally reminiscent of Moses' leadership of wandering Israel, being fed miraculously, miraculous bread from heaven in the wilderness. Promptly following that impossible feat, or in the words of Mark, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. Mark 6.45. Jesus stayed behind to dismiss the crowd and spend the night on a mountain in prayer. Yet, never a dull moment with Jesus, or in this case, for the disciples without Jesus, the disciples are found fighting a storm on the water all night long. Jesus decides to go to his disciples by taking a leisurely stroll walking on the water. The text says he meant to pass them by, which at first blush might seem heartless or maybe even comical. The disciples are straining at the oars all night long trying to stay afloat in the midst of a raging sea in gale force winds and here comes Jesus walking on the water as though out for an evening stroll. Mark tells us he meant to pass them by, which sounds pretty insensitive, mean, or even cold-hearted, but this is why it's critical that we read our entire Bibles, why we must be students of the whole Bible and read it on its own terms and not our own, because when we do, we begin to think in terms of other biblical stories. For example, the phrase, pass them by, is a trigger phrase, not unlike what we would be familiar with, perhaps a hyperlink. If we clicked that hyperlink, it would take us back all the way back to Exodus 33, where Moses asked to see the glory of God. God responds in verse 20. He says, you shall stand on the rock and my glory will pass by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Jesus was not being mean. Quite the opposite. He was showing the disciples his glory. They were getting a peek behind the veil, so to speak. To see Jesus for who he really is, the divine God-man. The disciples' response was appropriate. Mark says in Mark chapter, five, or chapter 6, verse 50, they all saw him and were terrified. And then I love Mark's comment in verse 51. 
He says, and he, meaning Jesus, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they, the disciples, were utterly astonished. Most commentators highlight the fact that the, the storm, uh, that, that it's because the storm ceased, that the wind ceased, that the disciples were utterly astonished. <clears throat> but I wonder if the true astonishment was not the, the, the ceasing of the wind necessarily, but it was that the God who covered Moses as he passed by just climbed into the boat with them. They were astonished. God wasn't passing by anymore. He was entering in. When Jesus and the disciples get to the other side, they land and anchor and get out. And immediately, of course, one of Mark's favorite words, people recognize Jesus and bring their sick. And he heals them. Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide in Galilee. This brings us to our passage today in chapter 7. Mark writes, chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' healing ministry, all of these things had not gone, gone unnoticed. Jesus had several encounters with the Pharisees before this point, but these were local or regional Pharisees from synagogues throughout Galilee. This time, the Pharisees are not alone. They've brought with them scribes from Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem have not gathered to check Jesus out to kind of understand or validate his ministry. The Pharisees had already done that. They'd already investigated Jesus back in chapter 2 when they saw Jesus eating with a group of sinners after he called Matthew. And when they questioned him about it, uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, they saw Jesus when he was eating with sinners, and when they questioned him about fasting, and when they confronted him about the Sabbath, his Sabbath adherence. This last conference, confrontation, confronting Jesus about his Sabbath adherence, led to, ended up with the Pharisees, actually we're told, holding counsel with the Herodians against him, seeking how to destroy him. In fact, this is not the first time Jesus had encountered the scribes from Jerusalem. Back in chapter 3, we're told the scribes who came down from Jerusalem accused Jesus of being possessed by a demon, by Bezelzebub, the prince of demons. The religious leaders thought their clout in the present circumstance in Mark chapter 7, they thought their clout would be enough to intimidate Jesus to submit to their religious authority and to conform to their religious ideals. However, when that didn't work, they tried to publicly cancel Jesus through false accusations. Yet, as we saw at the end of chapter 6, Jesus' fame and popularity continued to spread. Now in chapter 7, uh, these Pharisees have returned. The scribes from Jerusalem have returned. This time to prove that Jesus, this guy from Galilee, this, this self-proclaimed rabbi, is actually a fraud. A religious fraud. Not to be trusted. They're looking for ways to poke holes in Jesus' ministry. To show his people, uh, show these people that he can't be trusted as a teacher, 
as a rabbi, or even as a prophet, because he is unclean. He's a, he's a defiled peasant who can't be righteous before God. Therefore, he must be a fraud. This brings me to my proposition. My proposition is, how is a person clean before God? That is really what is at stake here. How is a person clean before God? Before we get into the text any further, I want to draw our attention to three scenes. Uh, I just want to, I want to consider the, the form of the passage we're looking at. There's three scenes that we can pick out uh, that Mark presents to us. Three scenes in which Jesus is at the center of these scenes. If you were to think about it in, in, a, in a play on stage, there's three different scenes that happen, but Jesus is the center of all three of them. What changes are those who are around him, at least from a narrative vantage point. In scene one, it is Jesus with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. Listen to how Mark describes scene one, or the first scene in verse one. <clears throat> now, when the Pharisees, excuse me, now when the Pharisees and the, or I lost my place, hang on. Hmm. Technology, you got to love it. <clears throat> now, the, when the Pharisees had gathered to him and the scribes also from Jerusalem, they gather to Jesus, they surround Jesus, they encircle Jesus. This is, if it were a movie, it would be a narrow camera angle with just Jesus and the religious leaders surrounding him. It would feel intimidating and ominous. The second scene is described in verse 14. It is Jesus with the people. So we had Jesus with the leaders, and now it's Jesus with the people. It's like the religious leaders have shrunk away, and Jesus is left standing. The crowds were there before, but they had given way to the religious leaders. When the religious leaders came and surrounded Jesus, everybody kind of gave them a bit of space. You knew something was going to go down here. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, dwindling away, leave Jesus standing there. He beckons to the people. He says, Jesus called to the people and said to them, hear me, all of you. Jesus is talking to the people directly. The third and final scene is described for us a few verses later in, chapter, or in verse 17. Mark describes, he says, and when Jesus had entered the house and left the people. So Jesus with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus with the people, and now he leaves the people. Jesus leaves the people, but again, uh, if this were a movie, the camera would stay centered on Jesus, who moves from the public place to a private house to be with just his disciples. So Jesus with the religious leaders, Jesus with the people, and Jesus with his disciples. Three different scenes that we have in this chapter or in the, this passage. Each of these scenes actually corresponds to one of my points. So let's turn our attention to scene one, Jesus and the religious leaders. Mark chapter seven, verses one and two. Mark writes, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they, uh, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled and unwashed. Jesus is a threat to established Judaism. 
These religious leaders, as we've talked about, have not come down to know Jesus. They've come down to intentionally undermine him, to thwart him, to humiliate him, to invalidate him. And I'm, and I'm sure if given the chance and the right set of circumstances, like a riled up crowd of angry people, which is probably what they're actually trying to create in this story, ultimately their aim was to destroy Jesus. As the religious elite in Israel, they are looking for a gap in Jesus' religious armor. And they spot this, this weak link in his disciples. His disciples are eating food with unwashed hands. A ceremonial taboo. How could Jesus let his disciples eat with defiled hands? This is actually exactly what they ask him. Look at verse 5. It says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do, uh, why do, uh, let's see, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but why do they eat with defiled hands? This might sound like a triviality to us. I mean, if you and I, if you've ever, likely, if you've ever eaten at a restaurant and uh, partway through your meal, you need to go to the bathroom, Right? I know this is awkward, safe from the pulpit, but you need to go to the bathroom. You go to the bathroom, um, and then you're, you're going to leave, and what's posted by the sink in the bathroom? Wash your hands, right? Uh, and so sometimes, hopefully, you wash your hands before you return to your meal that you're going to be putting in your food in your mouth with those hands, right? Hopefully, you wash your hands. Now, here's the thing. Not everybody washes their hands after they use the restroom, right? That's not illegal, unless you happen to work there. I'm very thankful that employees are required to wash their hands before they go back to the kitchen and make my food, right? We're thankful for that, but it's not illegal to wash or not wash your hands. Not washing your hands after using the bathroom is gross, especially if you're in the middle of eating your meal. You might be, uh, but it, like I said, it's not illegal, and it certainly doesn't mean that you're morally guilty. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't bring moral shame. So you might be asking, well, then what's the big deal? Back in verse 3 and 4, Mark has already explained the very different cultural context of Judaism. Specifically, cleanliness in Jewish culture was literally next to godliness. Look at verses 3 and 4. Mark writes or observes or commentates for us. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews... Do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Washing hands is integral to the Jewish lifestyle. Not just with the Pharisees, but he says all the Jews, all the Jews do this. Washing and cleanliness were a big deal in Jewish culture. Why? Because back in Leviticus, when the tabernacle was being set up, Aaron and his sons were being installed as priests, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, giving them strict regulations concerning clean and unclean objects. In fact, five long chapters of Leviticus, Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, leading up to the Day of Atonement, are dedicated to defining clean and unclean things, like food, 
like animals and like people. Remember, Israel was a set-apart people. They were to be a people unto Yahweh, his treasured possession. They were to bear his image, so to speak, to the nations. But they had a problem. They were just as stained with sin as every other person and every other nation. This then creates a dilemma. How is a pure and holy God to dwell amid sinful people? The answer God institutes was the sacrificial system and the priesthood. God set aside Aaron and his sons as priests who, after they bathed and put on priestly garments, interestingly enough, that God designed, ordained, and enabled spirit-filled men to make, which is a whole nother sermon. Priestly garments that clothed the high priest, get this, clothed the high priest in a righteousness. That's the point of the golden tablet that the priest, the high priest would wear on his forehead that was set like a seal from a signet ring that said, holy unto the Lord, right? He was made holy unto the Lord when he was covered by the Lord's righteousness. The Lord had covered him with clothing that God designed, that God ordained, and that God by his spirit had made. The priest, although a sinner, was clothed with the righteousness of God so that once a year on the Day of Atonement, he could offer sacrifices for himself, for the priests, and for the people. God takes his holiness seriously. Priests had numerous laws defining and regulating their cleanliness, lest they bring defilement into or near the presence of God on pain of penalty of death. Unclean animals, utensils, and even people were prohibited from coming into the tabernacle or the temple. And according to Old Testament law, defilement, uncleanliness, was transferable. If you touched an unclean thing or an unclean thing even accidentally touched you, whether pot, animal, or person, you were made unclean and thereby excluded from drawing near to God's presence. Fast forward a few thousand years of continual disobedience and rebellion, two exiles, the rise and fall of five Gentile world powers, and the current occupation of the Roman Empire, and we arrive at Jesus' day. Mosaic law was still in effect for Torah-observant Jews, but various Jewish scholars... In an attempt to clarify, apply, and protect the law developed a vast oral tradition of interpreting the law. In Mark, this is referred to in our passage as the tradition of the elders. The point was to put a protective hedge around the law so that no one would accidentally transgress the law and bring an unclean thing near the temple. Where Moses wrote in Exodus uh, 29:13. You shall not boil a goat, just as an example, in its mother's milk. Oral tradition, these laws, so that's, that's the commandment. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That's the law from God. Over time, to, to protect people from even the possibility of that uh, transgression happening, tradition was developed that hedged the law by prohibiting Jews from eating meat and dairy at the same time, even if it was of different animals. 
In fact, even today, uh, Jews are prohibited from even sitting at the same table if one person has dairy in his food and another person has meat. So in other words, one of the times that I went to Israel, we went to a food court, lots of different restaurants. Uh, some students went and got pizza and some other students went and got a, it's a shawarma, it was a meat uh, sandwich kind of thing. And they wanted to eat together, so they came and sat at the same table. And it was like, it was a terrorist attack, right? Because these Jews from all over the court, I don't know how they saw it, but some started yelling something and it, they swarmed the table. And our students didn't know Hebrew, had no idea what was going on, just knew a bunch of angry Jews were running at them, right? And they're like, ah! And they split them up and said, you can't eat at the same table. They said it in Hebrew, but the students got the gist, right? You can't eat the same table well, because there's a chance. You're, 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 uh, um, you're violating oral tradition. They're not eating goat and they're not eating uh, the mother's goat boiled in a mother's milk, but oral tradition says you can't have dairy and meat at the same meal. You can't even have it at the same table. Right? So they had to split up. They take the oral tradition very seriously. Tim Keller summarizes, uh, I found this helpful. He says, according to cleanliness laws, if you touched a dead animal or human being, if you had an infectious skin disease like boils or rashes or sores, if you came into contact with mildew, if you had any kind of bodily discharge, or if you ate meat from an animal designated as unclean, you were considered ritually impure, defiled, stained, unclean. That meant you couldn't enter the temple spiritually, morally. Unless you're clean, you can't be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. You were excluded. You were alienated. You were put outside. The Pharisees and scribes, are effectively publicly accusing Jesus through his disciples of violating Jewish tradition and therefore, and this is important, therefore in danger of transgressing, transgressing the law. And ultimately, they're saying Jesus is trivializing the holiness of God because he allows his disciples to eat with unwashed hands. This guy can't be a holy man. He doesn't take God's holiness seriously. But here's the thing, as Tim Keller points out, Jesus couldn't have agreed more. He couldn't have agreed more with the religious leaders of his day. But specifically about the fact that we are unclean before God, unfit for the presence of God. But Jesus disagreed with them about how to address our uncleanliness. All of us are unclean. Every single one of us is unclean. Jesus didn't disagree with the religious leaders about that. He disagreed with how do we and what do we do about it. This brings me to my first point. Religion can't cleanse you. Religion can't cleanse you. You might be thinking, well then what in the world am I doing here today? Hang on. Look at how Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 6 and 7. Mark writes, And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus calls the religious elite, the experts in the law, the professional clergy of his time, hypocrites. A hypocrite is a Greek word for a play actor. This is a word that you would use for someone who would uh, stand up on stage and perform in a play. One who dresses up in a costume, puts on makeup, and disguises their own identity to represent an alternative identity. It's a facade, a pretense, make-believe. It's fake. Jesus calls them out. He says, you guys, you're faking it. Your religion is not real. It's all an act. Our outward activity, listen to this, our outward activity does not justify us. Being more godly on the outside doesn't mean we're more justified, clean, or acceptable to God. God isn't impressed with our religious fervor, our theological knowledge, and our good deeds. The Pharisees added laws upon laws, thinking that if they just had enough laws, they would not transgress God's law, and then they would be justified. We can do the same thing. We can think, if I just figure out the right formula, then I'll be okay, then I'll be acceptable, then I'll be clean. The problem is the law was never intended to cleanse us, to justify humanity before God. The law was given so that we might know we are defiled. We're sinful, we're stained, we're unclean, in need of saving, in need of cleansing. Paul wrote to the Galatians, why then the law, he asks. It was added because of transgression. If law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it hasn't. Life is not given through the law. In a practical sense, religion is the activities we do to justify our existence. It's the activities we do to justify our existence, to ensure that we are right, that we have a rightness about us. You don't even have to go to church to try to justify your existence. In fact, every human being that has ever walked on the face of the earth is seeking to justify their existence, to explain why they should take their next breath. Everybody, we all know, we all know we need cleansing. We need to be clean. We inherently know that we're dirty. We inherently know we're not enough. And so we create a means by which to justify ourselves. Jesus doesn't argue with the Pharisees and scribes about the human need to be clean. Instead, he accuses them of putting on an act of cleanliness, of fabricating a righteousness. In one sense, they act like they're trying to obey God through words and behaviors, but their hearts are far from him. They are religiously active on the outside, but inwardly they are rebellious. They take a commandment of God, like honor your father and mother, and seek to find ways to get around the commandment through self-righteous laws. But this is like using God, using God for our own righteousness. To make us look more clean on the outside. And we do this too, don't we? 
We try to busy ourselves with religious activity. We post maybe on social media Bible verses, quotes, or a picture of our devotional in our coffee layout. We theologize at others. We win apologetic arguments. We rail against the sins of culture or politics. We busy ourselves with Bible studies, prayer meetings, books, podcasts, videos, conference, seminars, degrees, so on and so forth. Listen to me. These things aren't bad. Don't hear me saying, well, I've got to stop. These things aren't inherently bad, but they're not also inherently good. And we need to know that. We need to remember that. And the danger you and I face is that we might be honoring God with our lips or even our actions, but our hearts might be far from him. Even worse, we might be found using God to make ourselves look good. But look at our outward behavior, our religious activity, and it can't save us. It can't justify us, and it certainly can't make us clean. The only people can't save us. It can't cleanse us because religion only goes skin deep. This leads me to my second point. Second point is our cleanliness isn't, or uncleanliness rather, our uncleanliness isn't skin deep. Look at verse 14 in our second scene here. Jesus with the people, Mark observes, he says, And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you. And understand, there is nothing outside of a person by which going into him can defile him. But the thing that comes out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is saying that our problem is not outside of us, but in us. Jesus is warning the people. He's saying, look, the Pharisees are trying to teach you that you should really care about what you look like on the outside. That you should make sure you're clean on the outside. But Jesus is saying, I'm telling you. Your real problem isn't outside of you or on a skin like a rash or something. Your real problem runs deeper than that, much deeper. Defilement is not something we contract from other things. It is something we transmit. We do this with sin. We think of our sin as merely external behaviors. We, we can say to ourselves, if I just stop sinning, then I would be clean. I, uh, I once met with a guy who was enslaved to pornography. This was a number of years ago. It was consuming his life. He was riddled with guilt, shame, and doubt. He felt unclean all the time. He wanted to meet with me to help him stop looking at pornography. But, but here, here's the thing. I told him he didn't really have a pornography problem. And, and he looked at me, and his eyes were wide, and he seemed dumbfounded. He had just explained to me that he did, in fact, have a pornography problem. He started to tell me again all the ways he struggled with porn, probably thinking I had somehow missed it the first time. Before he got going, I stopped him. I said, let me ask, let me, just let me ask you a question. What, what would happen if right now you never looked at porn again? You stopped right now. He looked confused. He waited for me to explain more. When I didn't, he said, well, then I wouldn't struggle with porn again. Pretty profound. Um, to which I responded, good. Then what? Then what? What's after that? He, he again looked confused and he said, I, I don't know. I, I've never thought about what's 
after. I think he thought if he could get rid of his porn addiction, then he would be good. He would be acceptable. He would be clean. He saw sin as a behavior, something he did on the outside that made him unclean. But it's not. See, the problem is, is if our sin is only our behaviors on the outside, then when we, when we tame those, when we, when we sanitize those, we think we're good. And Jesus says, ah, you're a hypocrite. You're missing it. You got a nice polished veneer, but you're rotten on the inside. May we never be people that are satisfied with veneers. May we be a people that are broken because our hearts are wicked. In fact, in the next scene, he tells his disciples the diagnosis of uncleanliness runs even deeper than skin level. Look at verse 17. Mark writes, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Then jump down to verse 20. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. This is the same thing he said to the crowd of people, but with his disciples, right? With his disciples, Jesus explains even further. In verse 21, he says, from within, out of the heart, the very center of a man comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. My third point is this. We're defiled from the inside out. I would add to that, we are far more defiled than we think we are. The guy enslaved to pornography thought his sin was only skin deep. In other words, he thought he needed to stop a behavior. When I asked him what was, what was going to happen after he stopped, he was trying, I was trying to help him see that his pornography problem was not actually the problem. It was a symptom of a much deeper problem. Just stopping the behavior of pornography wasn't going to solve his deeper problem. If all he was ever worried about was stopping pornography, he was never going to meet Jesus. And know the need of a salvation that met the depths of his soul. Right? That, that worked from the inside out. I didn't want to leave him thinking that pornography was his problem because it wasn't. It was his solution to his problem of a wicked, self-centered, self-serving heart. Think back to the fall. Maybe you don't, maybe, maybe, maybe like, wait a second. Think back to the fall. Genesis 3, at what point did Adam and Eve first sin? Was it when they actually took the fruit and they actually ate it? I don't, I don't actually think so. I think it was before then, and I think the author of Genesis is actually trying to show us that. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3 briefly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, we're going to be starting there. The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the lie. There's the lie. 
God said, don't eat of the fruit, you will surely die. The serpent says, eat of the fruit, you surely won't die. Actually, you won't die because God's actually hiding it from you. The fact that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. That's the lie. Then look at verse 6 and following. And it's like, the, but pay attention to how it's written. The text slows down. It's like it's, it's in slow motion and we're getting an inside look at Eve's thought process. It says, Eve's, or we get a look at Eve's heart. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, keep in mind, she's seen this tree before, maybe a hundred times before. But now she sees the tree anew. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. I think it's at this moment that Eve sins. Before she reaches out her hand to seize the fruit, her heart has been reoriented towards God. So that for the first time in her life, she now looks at the tree with different eyes. It's still the same tree that it always was, still a forbidden tree. The tree hasn't changed, but her view of God has. The view of herself in relationship to God has she bought the lie of the serpent that God was actually the enemy withholding from her what she could have without him. She didn't need God. She could have the benefits of God without God himself. And now when she looks at the tree, she sees what the tree means to her rather than what the tree means to God. And only then, only at this point, does she do the most logical thing she reaches out and she takes and eats. In other words, we only do that which makes the most sense to us. Have you ever run into somebody, maybe usually in traffic, and you're like, what were they thinking? If you have kids, you've said this many times. What were you thinking? Your kids were not thinking, right? Just to be clear, if you're having kids soon, your kids don't think until they're about 25. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> it's just prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet. If you're not 25 yet, don't worry, you'll forget about that later. <clears throat> Your kids aren't thinking, right? But what are people thinking? Have you ever asked yourself that? What were you thinking? How did that make sense to you? Why would you ever do that? Right? But here's the reality. Everyone does what makes the most sense to them in that moment. Even crazy people. Right? That's why they're crazy, because what makes sense to them has no basis in reality, but it's still what makes the most sense to them. They're at least being uh, authentic and honest with themselves, even though they're greatly deceived. Too many of us are like the Pharisees and the scribes. We think we have an outward cleanliness. That if I just stop encountering this defiled thing, whatever it might be, then I'll be clean. Or if I just follow enough rules and obey enough self-imposed laws, then I'll be clean. But we don't realize that outward cleansing, stopping a behavior or starting a behavior, is never going to be enough. If I just follow the right practices, if I just write, uh, read the right books, if I, if I follow the right people who contrive rules and laws and self-righteousness and systems to follow, Religion can't save us. Religion can't cleanse us because we have a relationship problem. Our hearts are broken, stained, and defiled. 
What we need is more than quick fixes, laws, behavior modification. What we need is new hearts. This is exactly what Moses said back in Deuteronomy, all the way back in Deuteronomy. He knew Israel wasn't going to obey the law because they had stubborn hearts. He said to Israel, they need to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts and no longer be stubborn. Deuteronomy 10.16. In Ezekiel, the Lord says, with the arrival of the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Ezekiel 36. Religion can't save us because what we need is a relationship. In the midst of the storms, when the waves are raging, we need to know that God isn't far off looking down at you saying, stop it, knock it off. He's climbing into the boat. He's entered in. God came to us in Jesus. He took on flesh and touched us in our hearts, the filthy part. And he transferred his holiness. Remember, holiness or defilement is transferable in the Old Testament. You, if something defiled touches you, you're then defiled. But not so with Jesus. He reaches in and he touches us and he transfers his holiness. But then he takes on our defilement. He gives us his holiness and he, he transfers to us his holiness and receives our defilement. And then he paid the lawful price for our uncleanliness before God. The Father turned his face away. Uncleanliness means you can't be in the presence of God. Jesus took on our uncleanliness and the Father turned his face away. He looked away. Jesus was exiled from the presence of God, forced outside the camp because of our sin. He died a leprous, filthy, defiled wretch. But God raised him from the dead, clean, pure, and a new man. No longer able to die, no longer able to be touched by sin, by filth. He has come to you and to me, and he is beckoned us to receive his healing he's given you if you are in Christ he's given you a new heart a heart of flesh not a heart of stone he has implanted in you a new spirit his spirit the Holy Spirit and you have been made new you must walk then in the newness of life in union with Christ that is the gospel you have been united to Christ, inseparably united to Christ. Stop living as though we're not. Don't live out of a wicked heart because you've been given a new one. Stop focusing on trying to stop your sin in a behavior way and turn towards Christ and walk, fall in love with Christ and start killing the wickedness in your heart. Right? The, the, the depths we don't have pornography problems. We don't have anger problems. We don't have bitterness problems. Those are symptoms. We have selfishness problems that we still want to be God. And we still want to use God to deify ourselves. We're unwilling to yield to die 
to, to lay our hearts bare, to, to crack our wicked hearts open before him and invite him in and say, God, help. I've got nothing else. Help me. Meet me in my uncleanliness right here. Invite him. That's what confession is. Confess not your behaviors only. Confess what's underneath those behaviors. Don't put band-aids on cancer. But lay your heart bare. A broken, a broken and contrite heart. God says, I will never despise. That's the kind of heart that I love. Because that's the kind of heart that I can clean. And when you stumble and fall, lay your hearts bare before him. Invite him in through confession and repentance. And be reminded of his cleansing power. Don't let your sin be about you, but bring it to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that religion can't save us, but relationship can. And that relationship has been given to us through Christ, that we, because of his humanity, because that the fact that he has taken on sin, the punishment due to the sons and daughters of Adam, he has taken and he has fulfilled on the cross. He's put an end to shame and to guilt and to death and to destruction, to the, to the righteous and just punishment of, of you, Father, And then he rose again into newness of life. So, Lord, help us to lay our hearts bare before him. Help us to to continually come to him to confess our sins, not just the outward, but our, our selfish tendencies of our heart. Help us, Lord, to lay those bare before you that you might heal. And, Lord, that we would not be hypocrites, that we would not be play acting Christianity but that we would be broken, broken and contrite people for your heart delights in them. And so it's for for your glory and our pleasure that we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.